0: Verses 32 through 40 it goes like this: And what shall I more say? For the time would fail me to tell of Gideon and of Barak and of Samson and of Jephthah, of David, also and Samuel and of the prophets, who through faith subdued kingdoms, wrought righteousness, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the violence of fire, escaped the edge of the sword. Out of weakness were made strong, waxed valiant in fight, turned to flight the armies of the aliens. Women received their dead, raised to life again, and others were tortured, not accepting deliverance that they might obtain a better resurrection. And others had trial of cruel mockings and scourgings, yea, moreover of bonds and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawn asunder, were tempted, were slain with the sword. They wandered about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, tormented, of whom the world was not worthy. They wandered in deserts and in mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. And these all, having obtained a good report through faith, received not the promise, God having provided some better thing for us, that they without us should not be made perfect. This is an appropriate scripture for us to consider as we work our way through the, the history of how we got the Bible. And <clears throat> we talked before about how God doesn't stop working uh, at the end of the New Testament. God is still working. And there are still people in the world right now and throughout church history of whom we could say that the world was not worthy, uh, who gave their lives, uh, even in some of these ways, for our sake, and some so that we could have the Bible. And we're going to talk about one of those people today. Jay Gresson-Machin has this great quote. He says, I do not need to undertake this task, he's talking about just understanding scripture and doing theology, as though no one has ever undertaken it before. The Bible has been in the world for nearly 19 centuries and during all those centuries, learned and devout, truly devout men have been searching the scriptures and have been endeavoring to summarize what the scriptures teach. It would be a sad mistake indeed if we should cut ourselves off from the past history of the Christian church and our interpretation of the word of God. I'm indeed trying to take you always to the foundation of truth, to the Bible itself. But in my study of the Bible with you, I have been dependent throughout upon what the collective wisdom of the church of all ages has been able to do with the gracious indwelling of the Holy Spirit toward understanding the truth that the Bible contains. And that's some of what we're trying to do this morning, is to glean from the the collective wisdom of our brothers and sisters from ages past. So let's pray and then i'll give you kind of the the outline and plan for the class today okay let's pray god we thank you for the cloud of witnesses that we are surrounded by and how they point us to your word so father i pray that you would help us to be full of gratitude and appreciation for what you have done in the lives of your people to bring us your word today in jesus name amen Well, in this class, we are thinking about how we got the Bible. And as we've just heard in the book of Hebrews, time would fail us to mention all of those men and women who devoted their lives and their deaths so that we could have the Bible in our language. With the time we have, we're trying to highlight some of those key players that God, in his providence, used to bring us his word. So last week, we talked about men like Jerome who translated the Latin Vulgate, John Wycliffe and his team of translators who devoted their lives to translating the Bible from the Vulgate into English. And though those men lived in very different worlds, different countries, different languages, a thousand years apart, they had similar motives. They wanted to have a quality translation of the Bible in the language of God's people. And that same desire continues on, especially through Wycliffe, who's been called the morning star of the Reformation. We'll talk about that a little bit. Uh, in just a moment here. This morning, the plan is that I'm going to spend a little bit of time kind of picking up Wycliffe's story and carrying that through to a guy named Erasmus, who you may or may not have heard of. Um, he plays an important part. And then about halfway through, uh, I have promised Tom halfway through that I'm gonna, we're going to switch places. Uh, and uh, Tom Lutman's going to come up and tell us about William Tyndale and the Bible uh, being published in English. So that's the plan for this morning. So Wycliffe, picking back up with Wycliffe, he would leave a lasting legacy. He died of natural causes in 1384. So Wycliffe himself was not a martyr. Um, But he left a legacy. Bruce Metzger uh, says this about Wycliffe, and it's rather poetic. He says, in 1428, so this is like 30 years after Wycliffe died, Pope Martin V insisted that Wycliffe's body be exhumed, that means dug up, burned, and his ashes cast into the river that flowed through Lutterworth. But just as his ashes were carried by that river to multiple points, so his message went far and wide during the following centuries. So Wycliffe, living in the 1300s, he's about 150 years before Martin Luther, Um, and Wycliffe has been called the morning star of the Reformation he served as kind of a theological waypoint for people who would follow him and in fact you can connect the dots very naturally from John Wycliffe to Martin Luther Uh, I'm not going to take the time to do that but it basically goes like this Wycliffe was a professor at Oxford and students would travel to Oxford to study from Wycliffe and then they would go back to the continent from the countries that they were from and so people who learned from Wycliffe would go back to Prague and uh, John Huss there embraced what he was hearing from Wycliffe. And uh, then John Huss was a martyr. He was killed for uh, his protest, his Protestant positions against the Roman Catholic Church. And Martin Luther would read John Huss and was familiar with John Huss and very much identified with John Huss. So uh, you can draw a pretty clear connection between Wycliffe and Luther and the rest of the Reformation. And in the time of Wycliffe, ideas could spread pretty much at the speed that you could travel, right? So like the students who would go learn from Wycliffe, they would take the reports uh, of their studies back uh, and ideas would spread like that. But the spread of ideas was absolutely revolutionized the century after Wycliffe died. Because something happened in 1450 when you have Gutenberg inventing the movable printing press. So remember, the entire history of the transmission of the Bible up until this point was done by hand. And I don't know if you've ever copied out, I imagine you've maybe written out uh, portions of scripture. Um, when I've been in Bible college and in seminary, I've had to write out by hand Genesis for a class on Genesis. I've had to write out by hand Revelation in a class on Revelation, I had to write out James by hand. If you've ever done something like that, I mean, it, it's, it takes time. Um, and uh, if you're an amateur scribe like me, uh, you know, you can make mistakes. But the printing press absolutely revolutionized the world. Um, and it's hard to overstate that point. This isn't a class on the printing press. Um, but we need to understand, as revolu- uh, the printing press was as revolutionary for the world as the internet has been uh, for our age. And there's plenty of analogies between the two. And in some important ways, the story of how we got the Bible enters into a new phase or a new era with printing. And I'm just going to list a a couple of the ways that the printing press impacted how we got the Bible. The first is that the printing press increased the availability of the Bible. Um, So the, the printing press allowed copies of writings to happen much faster than it would happen by hand. Um, And so books were being produced much more quickly and printing presses were popping up all over the place. So the printing press by Gutenberg was invented around 1450 and about a hundred years later, I mean, they're just all over Europe, printing presses. Um, And printing also, so printing made the Bible available, but printing also made copies of scripture more accurate. Now, mistakes that were made with handwriting could be cleaned up uh, or could be uh, standardized by printing. Now, mistakes could still be made, absolutely. I mean, mistakes are still made today with all of our advances. Um, But uh, the transmission of texts became much more stable uh, with the advent of printing. The first book to be printed on Gutenberg's press was a copy of the Vulgate, uh, the Latin Bible. But of course, that was just the beginning. Over the next 100 years, hundreds of editions of the Bible, a lot in Latin, but in other languages also, um, and millions of copies of the Bible would be circulating uh, in Europe by the 1550s, about 100 years later. Um, so those are some contextual things that we just need to realize, again, that are, that are developing and happening. Um, you have the, the spread of ideas, especially through the printing press, um, that's taking place after Wycliffe's death. And that takes us uh, to our next character uh, that, whose name is Erasmus. So the story of how we got our English Bibles takes us now uh, to the Netherlands where uh, this scholar was born who would revolutionize the transmission and the translation of scripture in ways that hadn't been done in the Western world in a millennium. So when Jerome made the Vulgate around 405, translation in the church in Western Europe more or less ground to a halt. Not a lot of translation was happening after Jerome made the Vulgate. Now there are parts of the Bible that were printed here and there, but remember the Roman Catholic Church, they, they pretty much standardized the Latin Vulgate and worship services in Latin throughout Western Europe. Um, long after the general populace stopped speaking Latin, right? So by the time we get to the 1400s, 1500s, people go to church and they don't understand what's being said. Um, One of the uh, kind of humorous stories that comes out of just this total lack of misunderstanding is you guys have probably heard the phrase hocus pocus, right? Um, That's a a phrase that that we've heard of that, you know, kind of refers to to magic. The, um, The way that that got into common parlance is... Uh, from the Latin Mass, where the Roman Catholic uh, priest would say, hoc est corpum est, uh, this is my body, or hoc est corpus meum, or something like that, I don't know, I don't speak Latin, I think it was hoc est corpus meum, but the people would hear that, and they don't know what hoc est corpus meum means, and so they would, they would refer to that as hocus pocus, um, that they just didn't understand what was even being said. Um, But even when people like Wycliffe started translating the Bible afresh, remember, they were only translating from the Latin Vulgate. So they were translating, in other words, they were translating a translation. They were not using copies of the original text in the Hebrew or Greek, and in part that's because they didn't have a copy of the Hebrew and Greek text to translate from. So in a real sense, even Wycliffe's translation was still very tightly connected to the Vulgate, uh, and that had, Theological and practical implications as we'll see here in just a bit. So for a thousand years the Western church developed doctrine and practice apart from the influence of the original languages of Hebrew and Greek. And then you know enter this guy named Erasmus. Desiderius is his first name Desiderius Erasmus. And he's a pivotal scholar both for philosophy, education, and theology. Um, but for our purposes we're going to focus on his work with the Bible. Now, like most people of his day, Erasmus identified himself as a Roman Catholic, but he was also critical of the Roman church. He published a satirical book, uh, kind of like the Babylon Bee of its day, that made fun of a dead pope. And uh, he had to publish it anonymously, uh, which was smart, uh, so that he wouldn't get arrested. But he would ruffle Roman feathers in lots of ways, uh, as we'll see. Most important for our study, Erasmus was the first to publish a printed copy of the New Testament in the Greek language and a printed uh, prolific Greek text. I mean, so again, it was printed and there were lots of copies of, of it. It would revolutionize how we got the Bible, how you and I got the Bible. So this effort to publish a Greek New Testament, like why was he even interested in it? It was part of a major theme of the time of the Reformation and the Renaissance, which are kind of going side by side. And one of their mottos was ad fontes, uh, which means to the fount or to the sources. So people in that time were wanting to go back to classic literature to, to see where their ideas originated and came from, from their culture. So Western culture was wanting to get back to the classics, back to their roots. And by going back to the Greek text of the Bible, Erasmus and Christianity had an opportunity to go to the fountain where scripture came from, back to the language in which God had originally revealed himself through the writers. Erasmus said in his introduction to the Greek text that he wanted people to draw from the fount rather than the muddy ponds and rivulets. And so I have revised the whole New Testament against the standard of the Greek original So that was, again, you could see that there's a common impulse throughout Bible translation history. Now, Erasmus faced some challenges in pulling this project together. The main challenge was getting a hold of Greek copies of the New Testament. Uh, So remember, in his time, they were all done by hand. Uh, They were rare, uh, the Greek copies. Nobody had printed them yet, right? That's what he wanted to do. Um, So Greek texts were rare. They weren't easy to find. So Erasmus had to travel around to find them. He had to travel to universities. A lot of times these things were only owned or possessed by very wealthy nobility uh, in different countries. So right, so he had to travel around. And when you do that, that, part of what that meant for him is that he had to work quickly sometimes. I mean, he couldn't just stay somewhere as long as he wanted if he was in another country or another city. And he couldn't take the Greek text with him. He couldn't pull out his phone and take a picture of it, right? Like, so he had to work rapidly sometimes. And another challenge was that the Greek texts done by hand weren't always complete copies of the New Testament. This is fairly common, right? And mostly it's because of the size, right? The size of the paper and the book that you would write in to write something by hand, you couldn't, like, you couldn't just, like, lug that around. I mean, if, again, if you go to the Museum of the Bible, like, a lot of the old Bibles are massive. Um, and so a lot of copies of the New Testament are only, like, a a set of the Gospels, right, or a set of Paul's letters. Um, So he couldn't just show up at a library somewhere necessarily and open the whole Greek New Testament and work from that. Another challenge he faced in the first edition that he published is that the only Greek texts that he could find were fairly recent copies. Um, So Ryrie uh, has written a book on the history of the English Bible, Charles Ryrie, and he says, His manuscripts, that's Erasmus' manuscripts, were not of notable antiquity. None predated the 12th century, and several were somewhat defective, which we'll talk about in a second. So in other words, the oldest Greek texts that Erasmus could find were from the 1100s, and obviously that's far from when Scripture was originally written. One of the most famous challenges, just to illustrate the challenges that Erasmus faced, was actually at the very end of the Bible, uh, at the very end of Revelation. So Erasmus, in that first edition, he only had access to one Greek text for Revelation. And that, uh, well, I have the name for the text, but that's not interesting. Uh, But he had to borrow it from another scholar. And that manuscript was missing the last six verses. So in other words, imagine this. So Erasmus is looking around for Greek texts of the New Testament because he wants to print one. The only copy of Revelation he can find doesn't have the end. And the end is great. Um, so he doesn't have Revelation chapter 22 verses 16 through 21. So what's he going to do, right? Like he doesn't want to leave that out. So he, he back translates from the Latin, which they had in the Vulgate. He back translates from the Latin back into Greek. Like Erasmus is a pretty smart guy. And so he could do that. Um, now this might sound troubling, right? And in some ways, like it it was, but this is, again, this is nothing to be afraid of. There was no conspiracy or cover-up. The reason we know this story is because Erasmus said that this is what happened in the first edition. So Erasmus wasn't trying to hide anything. He's like, hey, I can't find the end of Revelation. So for the Greek, I back-translated from the Latin into, uh, into Greek. And to be clear, we don't have this problem today, right? We have lots of copies in the Greek of the end of Revelation. Uh, but this is just a limitation that Erasmus faced. So these, and again, so these are just some of the challenges he faced, and eventually he would complete the first edition in 1516. And because of these challenges, as Erasmus continued to study and gain access to more Greek resources, he would revise and update and republish the Greek New Testament. So in his lifetime, Erasmus revised the Greek text four times. And after his death, others would keep revising it and keep updating it. You know, somebody would get a copy of his text and they'd say, "Oh, like I know of this other Greek manuscript over here," and you know, they would they would compare and they would update things. Eventually, so just a quick tie-in for you to connect the dots. But we'll talk more about this later. Eventually, it was revisions of Erasmus's Greek New Testament that the translators of the King James Bible would use. Or we'll hear a little bit in a minute. Oh, spoiler alert: Tyndale would use Erasmus' Greek New Testament to translate the Bible into English. Uh, Tyndale also would look at the Vulgate, but he would especially use the Greek and he would use Erasmus' Greek um, to translate the Bible into English. Erasmus's Greek New Testament was called the Novum Instrumentum. The pages had one column for the Greek text and one column for his own Latin translation. So I don't know if you can see there, but on the left, that left column is his Greek text. Um, again, he's looking at Greek manuscripts, and then he's, he's uh, copying or putting down what he thinks uh, was the original Greek there on the left. And then on the right column is his new, fresh translation of the Greek text into Latin. Um, right? So again, to be clear, like Erasmus did not translate the Bible into English. I don't even know that he spoke English. Um, but he has two columns there, the Greek and the Latin. And then he had other pages where he would have his notes on the text and on his work and how he did it. So the Latin that Erasmus produced was not the Vulgate, like just to be obvious. This was a new translation, and it caused quite a stir. And um, I'll just, I want to illustrate for you some of the ways that Erasmus' new translation, both the Greek and the Latin, impacted uh, Bible translations. One of them still affects us today. So if you have your Bible, uh, open to 1 John chapter 5. What you have in your Bibles, uh, in 1 John chapter 5, verse 7, goes all the way back to Erasmus, one way or the other. So, would somebody, uh, would somebody read, uh, I would like one King James reading and one non-King James reading. Um, does somebody want to read from a King James translation? 1 John 5, 7, Phil? And was somebody read from a non-King James translation. Yeah, Tim. Okay. So you can tell the difference, right? Uh, there's a significant notable difference in 1 John 5-7 uh, depending on your translation. So, and this all goes back to Erasmus. So here's what happened. The first and second edition of Erasmus' New Testament read like the non-King James translation. It did not include this reference to the Word, the Father, and the Spirit. That wasn't because Erasmus was against the Word, the Father, and the Spirit, or against the Trinity. It was because the Greek texts that Erasmus was translating from did not have those words. Uh, None of the Greek texts that he had had those words. In his notes, he said, in the Greek codex, I find only this about the threefold testimony, quote, because there are three witnesses, spirit, water, and blood. But Erasmus uh, was attacked as being a heretic for not including those words because those words were in the Vulgate. And uh, he, Erasmus responded to those, those critiques saying, if a single manuscript in Greek had come into my hands in which stood what we read in the Latin Vulgate, then I would certainly have used it to fill in what was missing in the other manuscripts that I had. Well, so he published his first edition, and then he revised it in his second edition and still didn't have those words in it. The Latin Vulgate obviously still did have those words in it. But uh, Erasmus' opponents eventually did produce a Greek manuscript that had those words in it. And it's generally considered um, that Erasmus' opponents made that Greek manuscript for the occasion. Um, nevertheless, because Erasmus had publicly said, if I can find a Greek text that has it, I'll put it in there. In his third edition, Erasmus did include those words uh, because a Greek text had been produced. He said in his third edition, Erasmus said, I have restored the text so as not to give anyone an occasion for slander. From our remarks, it is clear that the Greek and Latin manuscripts vary, and in my opinion, there is no danger in accepting either reading. Um, So he did include it going forward and it stayed in the Greek text all the way up through the Greek text that the King James translators would use and that's how it wound up in our Greek New Testament. Um, But again looking back at history and looking at all the Greek manuscripts we have, it is very rare for those phrases to be in a Greek text. It is almost non-existent in the Greek text that we have. So then the question comes, well how did it wind up in the Latin Vulgate? Like, Why is it there? And what is very likely that happened, uh, and um, what's quite common in the copies of biblical texts is that scribes or uh, teachers, they would make notes in the margin or between the lines. I've showed you some manuscripts that has these comments or phrases either between the lines or on the edges. And what's very likely is that those words were a commentary on 1 John 5, 8. Which, ref, which 1 John 5.8 is a little cryptic. If you read it, it says, there are three that bear witness in earth, the spirit, the water, and the blood. Well, what's the spirit, the water, and the blood? Well, I mean, that's, it's not obvious what that is, right? And so what probably happened in copies of the Latin Vulgate is that there was a commentary on the side that referenced the Trinity. And over time, you know, people had to, fi- scribes had to figure out, well, is this, is this original or is this a commentary? And so they would, they would put it in with the text, that's probably how it wound up in there. And again, Wycliffe, when Wycliffe was, now again, we're zooming back 150 years, but when Wycliffe, when they were making copies by hand, or then they were translating into the English, remember, they were only using the Vulgate. And they knew about these kinds of issues, and so Wycliffe's translators, when they knew that there was a, a possible comment that got inserted into the text, they'd actually underline it in red. If you look at Wycliffe's copies uh, and translations of the Bible, you'll see parts that are underlined in red, and Wycliffe's translators are doing that when they think this kind of thing happened, when they think that maybe a commentary got put in with the text. Um, so Erasmus' work even affects our own translations today and some of what we're working with. Erasmus's work, I'll pause in a minute, because I bet you've got questions. Erasmus's work caused a different kind of stir because of the unique challenges that Greek pre- that the Greek and his fresh Latin translated presented to Roman Catholic theology. So Price and Ryrie said that this book that Erasmus made, the Greek and the Latin, shook the edifices of Latin Christianity to their foundations. They elaborate, the church considered the Vulgate an inspired translation, yet what should one make of passages in the Vulgate that could not be found in the Greek manuscripts, like the one we just talked about? How accurately did, they, did the Vulgate render the original Greek? Had misunderstandings conveyed by the Vulgate translation unduly informed the development of some points of doctrine? Close quote. That's, again, that's Ryrie uh, talking. So the Greek text and the fresh Latin translation presented doctrinal challenges to the Catholic Church. And I'll just illustrate a couple for you, and then I'll try to step down so that Tom can talk about Tyndale. In Matthew 4.17, in the Latin Vulgate, you have... Uh, Jesus telling people to repent. But in the Latin, the Latin translation says, do penance. But when Erasmus put the Greek text there and then a fresh translation, he said, do penance isn't the best translation here. That's not the best Latin word. The better word is to turn your mind or to repent. Um, Another example of this is in Ephesians 5.32. Ephesians 5 is talking about marriage. Paul says this is a great mystery. In the Latin text, It says sacramentum. It says that marriage is a sacrament. But when Erasmus publishes the Greek text in a fresh Latin translation, it becomes more clear that sacrament is not a great translation of the word mystery. In Greek, it's mysterion, which you can hear the word mystery in there. So translation issues like that began to make people think twice about doctrines like penance and sacraments that seem to rely on the Vulgate uh, translation of the Bible. Now, Erasmus, we got to understand, Erasmus, like, Erasmus is the kind of guy, he's, he's a tossed salad. Like, he, he, I can't recommend Erasmus, his theology or his life or practice to you, right? Um, Erasmus was not trying to undermine Rome. Erasmus dedicated this book to Pope Leo X, right? Uh, So he thought he was doing Rome a favor. He was trying to be a good Roman Catholic. Nevertheless, uh, Rome banned all his books eventually. Uh, because the reformers would pick up on it. And the reformers like Tyndale and Luther, they would use his works. Last thing I'll read, I'll pause for questions and then I'll let Tom come up. So, uh, Tom, if you want, you can go ahead and start switching the uh, slides. Erasmus expressed his core desire like this. He said in the introduction to the first edition of the Greek New Testament Christ wants his mysteries published as openly as possible. I would that even the lowliest women, sorry, that's what Erasmus says, the lowliest women read the Gospels and the Pauline epistles. I would that they were translated into all languages so that they could be read and understood not only by the Scots and the Irish, sorry, Scots and Irish, but also by the Turks and Saracens. I think that's Muslims. Um, He says, would that the farmer sing portions of them at the plow. The weaver hum some parts of them to the movement of the shuttle. The traveler lighten the weariness of the journey with stories of this kind. Let all the conversations of every Christian be drawn from this source. So those are, those are some of Erasmus' impulses, his desires in producing the Greek New Testament, which would get picked up by Tyndale, Luther, and plenty of others. Any questions about Erasmus? And then I'll hand it over to Tom for Tyndale. Yes, Tim. Uh huh. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So Luther, it's it's absolutely connected. Um, so in 1517, Luther on October 31st, um, Luther nails the 95 Thesis to the door of Wittenberg. Luther was a professor; he was a teacher. So when Erasmus's Greek text came out, and they're in the same part of the world, um, that they're right next to each other, or maybe. I don't know if Erasmus is in Germany, but he's in the Netherlands, like he's really close. Um, He's from the Netherlands. So anyway, but that thing about penance that I mentioned, do penance or repent, that's the first thesis of the 95 thesis is about penance. So Luther was absolutely uh, using Erasmus's text and he used it for his German translation. They would clash heads over other things, uh, Erasmus and Luther, but they were contemporaries. They knew about each other. Luther was using his Greek. All right. If you have other questions for me, please let me know. I'm going to turn it over to Tom now. Okay.
1: Awesome. I'm going to try to move this over just a little bit so I can get this. Okay. So I'll try to move rapidly which fits with Tyndale because Tyndale had to work quickly uh, for some reasons similar to Erasmus, but for uh, other reasons as well, uh, which we'll get into. So um, just as a little background, what you're seeing up here is a picture I took uh, four years ago tomorrow. uh, Betsy and I had the opportunity to visit uh, England, and while we were coming back from John Newton's home, which uh, I could go into a little bit about him. we saw that there was a, uh, this monument called the Tyndale Monument, and I uh, we, we paid a visit to it. This is in uh, North Nibley, uh, kind of northeast of Bristol, and it's the area where William Tyndale was from. It's from a Gloucester region of, of England. And I really didn't know much about Tyndale at that point, uh, but on this monument, or this cenotaph, which is a monument where the person's remains are somewhere else a lot of times, war dead it's like that and Tyndale was definitely involved in a war Uh, but on it it says this it says erected in uh, 1866 in grateful remembrance of William Tyndale translator of the English Bible who first caused the New Testament to be printed in the mother tongue of his countrymen born near the spot he suffered martyrdom at Vilvorden in Flanders in October on October 6, 1536. Uh, William Tyndale was one who, in many senses, gave his life twice for the Bible. Uh, we it references his martyrdom, but William Tyndale lived a life of exile, uh, a le- life dedicated for the purpose of bringing the Bible into the English language. And um, we'll get into the King James, I think, next week, but about 80 to 85 percent of what we read as the King James Bible is based on Tyndale's translation work. And he was the first to do the translations directly from the Greek, as Josh said, from Erasmus's uh, uh, work there, and um, from the Hebrew. And his English translation of the Bible was the first to be mechanically produced. So there's the, the printing press. And much of his work was done while he was on run, on the run from agents of the church in England who considered his translation work heretical. Uh, a few weeks ago, I think, Ginger, you mentioned the word tenacious when you were thinking about translation. And this certainly fits with, uh, with William Tyndale. He is uh, tenacious in his project, and it, the reason that he is doing this is because uh, not simply an academic exercise, but it springs from his acceptance of reformation truths burning in his heart, uh, sola fide, sola scriptura. So the reason we know little about William Tyndale, his actual background, uh, is partially because of this, it was essential that he live kind of uh, an, an anonymity. Um, the words uh, he must increase and I must decrease, which is a phrase that is first found in Tyndale's translation of the the Bible in reference to John the Baptist, but they really fit here with William Tyndale himself. So I wanna get into a little bit of the uh, life of William Tyndale, a little more focused on his biography than perhaps we've done on some of the others. But he was born in uh, around uh, 1494, we don't know exactly what year, but uh, somewhere around the towns of Uh, Slimbridge or Stinchcombe in Gloucester, and uh, you can see this is a view from that monument, and so this is kind of what the landscape looks like. Um, This is actually um, very close to the Welsh border, and there's a reason I want to mention that. Uh, If you, I don't think I can, oops, excuse me, uh, show from here, but in the far distance, you can actually see a river, and there's a bridge there, and that bridge leads to Wales. Um, So this area was uh, obviously very pastoral, it's known for its uh, cloth industry, and it's much like the the heartland of England, and the language that Tyndale uses uh, for his translation, this is where it comes from, and it's important that we even think of that proximity to uh, the Welsh and the Welsh language, there's a very lyrical sound to the, 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 the King James, which is based off of Tyndale's work. Um, So we don't know much about his childhood, but uh, when he was a young man, maybe around 12 years of age, uh, Tyndale goes to Oxford University, first at Maudlin Hall, kind of like a grammar preparatory school. And he gets his master's of arts in 1515. And then it's thought that he uh, may have studied over at Cambridge University. Cambridge was much more a center for reformation uh, thought. Um, Erasmus, who had come to England and uh, bringing his work and actually lectured there in, in Cambridge. And so this, a lot of the reformers, people we know as reformers in, uh, of the English Reformation, uh, were they had some path through Cambridge University and it's thought that uh, Tyndale may have studied there as well. Um, There was the White Horse Inn which was uh, there by Cambridge where uh, some of the future reformers and Bible translators like uh, uh, Thomas Bilney, Miles Coverdale, we'll get into the Coverdale Bible I think uh, next week maybe, uh, Matthew Parker, Nicholas Shaxton, John Rogers, uh, they, they all find their place there and it's believed that William Tyndale may have been part of this uh, group that would meet there, that's mentioned in Fox's Book of Martyrs. Well, in 1521, um, we know that Tyndale returned to Gloucester, this area, and he came there to, with a particular job to be the tutor to the John Walsh family. Uh, and this uh, wealthy family had uh, young children and Tyndale served there uh, as their tutor And kind of like a chaplain for the family and um, it was a place where there were frequent visitors including priests and in a famous debate uh, meeting one evening in 1522 and I'll I'll read this from uh, Stephen Lawson's book says as local priests came to dine at the Walsh Manor Tyndale witnessed firsthand the appalling biblical ignorance of the Roman Church During one meal, he found himself in a heated debate with the Catholic clergyman. The priest asserted, we had better be without God's law than with the Pope's. Tyndale boldly responded, I defy the Pope and all his laws. He then added that if God spared him life, ere many years, he would cause a boy that drives the plow to know more of the scripture than he does. That reference to the plowboy has become associated with Tyndale. And as Josh mentioned uh, in Erasmus, Tyndale is actually referring back to Erasmus uh, when he says that, makes that quote of the plowboy. But I like to think, looking here at these pastoral fields uh, near uh, the Tyndale Monument, that Tyndale had that plowboy in view as he translates the Bible. He's thinking, how do I communicate God's word? In common English, in the English, now we wouldn't think it necessarily as the common English now, but certainly in that day, this is the English that was spoken, even by the plowboy. So, in 1523, uh, Tyndale moves on to London with uh, a lot of this thinking in mind. He is has a project in mind of uh, trying to get the approval to get the Bible translated into English to have this as an approved project by the church in England, and he hopes that. Bishop Tunstall uh, would approve of this because uh, Tunstall thinks favorably on Erasmus, and so he hopes that (coughs) he can get this uh, project off the ground. But his efforts, he soon finds, are going to be thwarted (coughs) directly by Bishop Tunstall and by others, and he soon realizes that there is no place in England that he can carry out this work, no safe place. So in order to bring the word to England in that mother tongue, Tyndale realizes that he will have to leave England himself. And so in many ways, this is a self-imposed exile for the purpose of this work. Uh, In the spring of 1524, at the age of 30, Tyndale sails to the European continent to launch his translation work and publishing endeavor. And he would do so without the king's consent. I'm reading from Lawson's book here. Uh, This is a clear breach of the established law as a result every biblical text he translated He translated illegally when he departed his native shores Tyndale lived in exile for the remainder of his life Never again would he return to his beloved homeland for the next 12 years Tyndale would live on Foreign soil as a fugitive and outlaw of the English crown This is for the sake of bringing the Bible into the English language So he arrives in Hamburg, uh, Germany in 1524, and the first place he actually travels to is Wittenberg. And there's very possible that he has a meeting with with Luther there. (coughs) Excuse me. (coughs) And uh, there's some speculation, there's like a reference, uh, there's a signature that's left there from one of the meetings where it says, Guillermo Daltici ex Anglia, which sounds like a play on the words in Latin of William Tyndale from England. So, very possible that he meets with with Wittenberg, uh, with Luther, (coughs) while they're in Wittenberg. 1525, uh, he moves to the city of Cologne and begins work on translating the Bible from the Greek, uh, uh, the New Testament. And uh, he is able to work there, but soon word is getting out about what he is trying to do. And he has to flee from Cologne uh, before the printing can begin in earnest. There is some printing that has begun. And in fact, there is a, a, a little bit uh, of that remains of that work. This is called, known as the Cologne Fragment. This is actually, uh, most of it's actually the preface to the New Testament. And then the book of Matthew, and here's the woodcut that was part of that, of the Cologne fragment. And I wanna read a little bit of the prologue that he makes here, because I think it's very instructive of Tyndale's translation work. He says, I have here translated brethren and sisters most dearly and tenderly, beloved in Christ, the New Testament. So he actually had translated, but he hadn't got it printed yet. Uh, He uh, translated the New Testament for your spiritual edifying consolation and solace, exhorting instantly and beseeching those that are better seen in the tongues than I, and that have higher gifts of grace to interpret the sense of the scripture and meaning of the spirit than I, to consider and ponder my labor. He says, examine it, and that with the spirit of meekness. And if they perceive in any places that I have not attained the very sense of the tongue or meaning of the scripture, or have not given the right English word that they put to their hands to amend it, remembering that so is their duty to do. For we have not received the gifts of God for ourselves only or for to hide them, but for to bestow them unto the honoring of God and Christ and edifying of the congregation, which is the body of Christ. So he invites others to even edit his work. He says, if you can do a better job than me, then please make the corrections. Uh, this is important. Well, as Tyndale flees from Cologne, he goes to the city of Worms. Uh, and you might know that from, um, uh, from Luther, the place where the Diet of Worms took place in 1521. So he's there about uh, four year, or five years later in 1526. And this is where he's able to get the New Testament finally printed. And there are about 300, or excuse me, 3,000 copies of uh, the Worms New Testament that are made. This is one copy that's part of the, uh, I think, Van Campen Bible collection down in Florida. And uh, these 3,000 copies are shipped into England and they are uh, put in bales of cotton and smuggled in. And, As soon as the word gets out to the authorities, those in the church in England, that this is happening, they work to try to uh, end the distribution. The Archbishop of Canterbury, the next year, 1527, he actually buys up as many of these as possible so he can burn them. And it seems like a good plan at first for him to try to end the circulation, but that money is actually uh, comes back and is able to um, fund the next, uh, trans uh, the next edition Tyndale's updated, uh, edition of the new Testament. So what was meant for evil, God uses for good here. Uh, he actually, the archbishop sponsors the next project, uh, 1528, uh, Tyndale is not only working on the Bible translation, but he has other works that really reflect his, his acceptance of the truths of scripture, the reformation teachings, um, He releases the parable of the wicked man, which is uh, a focus on salvation by faith alone. Uh, And as this is happening, the church there in England is setting out agents to try to track down where Tyndale is, uh, try to find him. He releases uh, another work called The Obedience of a Christian Man, which attacks the Catholic church structure, which Henry VIII likes at this point, Uh, Henry VIII, Uh, temporarily becomes a fan. Uh, 1529 he moves from uh, Marlburg, he had left uh, Worms, and he's in Marlburg and he goes to Antwerp. And this is, during this time, this is amazing, think this is a guy who's on the run. He actually learns the Hebrew language and becomes a master of the Hebrew language while on the run. You know, I have trouble studying another language in in an academic classroom setting. This guy, he is Uh, tenacious in his work and so he works on the Pentateuch and actually finishes it in 1529 but he's forced to flee again and um, there's a story about him heading to Hamburg back to Hamburg and the ship that he is on is shipwrecked and while he survives his translation of the Pentateuch is lost and so he doesn't give up 1530 he's in Hamburg and he retranslates the Pentateuch um, takes the time to do it again. I think there's a, here's a, um, part of that, the Pentateuch, his work. And he continues on the, working on the rest of the Old Testament. He publishes another work called The Practice of Prelates, which highlights corruption of the church and the crown. And Henry VIII is no longer a fan, and dislikes that, and um, and so the pressure is on to um, find Tyndale and put him to silence. Uh, he, he's There's a war of word that goes on between him and Thomas More, who you might know, famous writer of Utopia. Uh, uh, 1531 to 1534, Thomas Cromwell, uh, uh, who works for the king, sets out several agents to try to apprehend him. There's even a secret meeting there and Tyndale refuses to come to to England. Uh, They promise safety, he knows that's not gonna be kept. In 1534, he's in Antwerp, and he releases his second edition of the New Testament uh, and working in the next year on translating s- several Old Testament books. At this point, there is an agent who is sent by the name of Henry Phillips, a young man who serves as the Judas. Uh, this is a young man who is in debt, and so he's offered money in order to find Tyndale and betray him. And so he makes his way to... Uh, to, I believe, Antwerp, and he finds Tyndale, tracks him down, and builds a friendship with him, and then betrays him. Tyndale is arrested in a meeting way in, in the alleyway, and um, though he is himself is arrested and taken away to a prison in the Vilvord Castle near Brussels, uh, John Rogers, who works on the Matthew Bible, I think will look, he actually rescues Tyndale's works on the books of Joshua to First Chronicles. Tyndale though is imprisoned and he spends 500 days in that prison awaiting trial. And uh, this is his last letter before his uh, execution. He writes a letter uh, asking for some things and it really reminds me of uh, Paul in prison, he says, I suffer greatly from the cold of my head and am afflicted by a perpetual uh, discharge, uh, which is much increased in the cell. My overcoat is worn out, my shirts are also worn out. And then it says he requested a lamp in the evening. It is indeed wearisome sitting alone in the dark. But most of all, I beg and beseech your clemency to be urgent with the commissary. Permit me to have my Hebrew Bible. Hebrew grammar and Hebrew dictionary, that I may pass the time in that study. And so he's desiring to continue to work here. Well, and he was not granted that request. 1536, he faces trial in August, and uh, shortly thereafter, he goes through the ceremony of de- being defrocked. Uh, his hands are scraped uh, as part of that ceremony. His, they put priest vesture on him, and then they remove him, of those off of him. And two months later, October 6th, 1536, he is led to the execution. He is fastened to a post surrounded by brushwood and his famous last words, Lord, open the eyes, uh, the King of England's eyes. And uh, shortly thereafter, he's strangled by a heavy chain around the neck. And that's not enough for those uh, executing him. They light the fire and uh, Tyndale is gone but his prayer is answered even uh, soon after the Coverdale and Matthew Bibles appear in England and they are based a lot on Tyndale's work and they are actually sanctioned by Henry VIII uh, under the influence of uh, the Archbishop of Canterbury uh, at that point, Thomas Cramner. And so uh, he leaves a, a wonderful legacy that we still read. And but, while well, we have put a spotlight on Tyndale here, and uh, Tyndale himself would not want that spotlight. Uh, this is a, a picture, or a portrait, it's probably not of him, we don't actually know what he looked like, uh, but um, notice where his hand is pointing, to the Bible itself, and that's where we want to look. So, um, by the way, if you have the Olive Tree app, I have that on my, my Bible, um, you can look up a passage, and uh, you can get a free, uh, the Tyndale version of it, and so you can see how close it is to the New Testament here, like 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 9 here, you might not be able to see it here, but it says, but as it is written, the eye hath not seen, and the ear hath not heard, neither hath entered in the heart of man, ye things which God has prepared for them that love him. All right, I think I, Time has failed us, so I will turn it back over to Josh.